And welcome back to Regionally Speaking with your hosts, Tom Maloney and Dee Dodson. Richard Gordon Hatcher was born July 10th, 1933 in Michigan City, Indiana. He received a Bachelor's of Science degree in Business and Government from Indiana University in 1956 and a Bachelor of Law with Honors with a concentration in Criminal Law, as well as a Juris Doctorate from Valparaiso University School of Law in 1959. A successful politician, social servant, and educator, Richard Hatcher began his career practicing law in East Chicago, Indiana. In 1961, he began serving as deputy prosecutor for Lake County until he was elected to Gary City Council in 1963. He was the first and only freshman elected president of the city council in Gary's history. For many people in Gary, Richard Gordon Hatcher will always be known as mayor. His life has always been a life of service to the people of Gary, having rose to a level of prominence that his ancestors could have never imagined. When he was elected as mayor of Gary in 1967, Hatcher was among the first African-American mayors of a major U.S. city. He remained in office until 1987 for an unprecedented five terms. Richard Gordon Hatcher passed away December 13, 2019. Joining us today to talk about his history and legacy is Chuck Hughes, the president and CEO of the Geary Chamber of Commerce. Chuck, as always, thank you so much for joining us on Regionally Speaking. Dee, thank you for having me. Chuck, in my introduction to our conversation today, I shared just a small glimpse into the professional background of Mayor Richard Gordon Hatcher. I always love to chat with you because I consider you to be a true historian, having a front row seat to much of Gary for umpteen years. So I want you to share a little bit about the man. What was the Honorable Richard Gordon Hatcher like? Well, Dee, thank you for uh, making me uh, as an old man. And I, (laughs) but uh, seriously though, uh, he was the trendsetter. He was the trailblazer. He was the person who, once he was elected in 1967, he set standards. I mean, he showed all of us. I mean, subsequently, I became a city councilman. He showed us all that it was possible. And at that particular time, Gary was not the Gary that we recognize right now. Gary was a city where he literally had to challenge and impress people in order to get to where he was. You mentioned him being the first freshman president of the council. He may have been one of only one or two or the only African-American on that particular council. So his leadership ability was exemplified early on. Before the world knew him as Mayor Hatcher, Richard Gordon Hatcher was an outstanding athlete, an activist, and a lawyer in private practice before becoming a Lake County Deputy Prosecutor. Again, at a time when oftentimes no one else in the room looked like him. And so it seems only natural that he would enter the political arena to represent disenfranchised community members. So let's go back to 1967. That year, not one but two African-American men were elected to lead a major American city. Carl Stokes was elected mayor of Cleveland and Richard Hatcher was elected mayor of Gary, with both advancing major victories for the civil rights movement. Let's listen to him in his own words as he reflected on that election night. Mm-hmm. I can't name all of the people who 
worked so hard from that first first campaign and and really challenged uh, the existing uh, uh, structure uh, in Gary and uh, which was uh, segregated uh, which uh, basically uh, was oriented to helping helping uh, those who had a lot <laughs> and not helping those who didn't have much. For many of the uh, young blacks in the city, uh, my being elected, uh, uh, it was, it was an, an inspiration on election night. Uh, I'll never forget uh, the night because our headquarters were up around 20th and Broadway. It was right next to our law office, where our law office was. That area, that entire street, was simply jammed with people. There were just people, people, wall-to-wall -wall, uh, uh, people uh, out there, and people were literally uh, dancing, uh, dancing in the streets. So Richard Hatcher was sworn into office January 1968 and remained mayor of Gary for the next 20 years. Chuck, as you were listening to that archived audio from Richard Hatcher, what were you thinking about? The fact that in 1965, that's when the Civil Rights Act was passed. So we're only talking like three years after that, or two years after that, rather, right. with him being elected. The open housing uh, ordinance in Gary was not enacted until 1968. So we're talking about a person who firsthand was there right on the brink of when uh, the entire Civil Rights Act for the entire nation was passed. And he became uh, one of the two and as arguably, he was the first, by a few hours or something, of the first black mayor in the United States. And for him to be able to hit the ground running with issues that affected the disparate, the urban, the black community, and not being satisfied with having been elected, not by a 90% majority of blacks, because Gary was not constituted in that way, but to have a vision and the courage to know and the commitment to stay with what was true to him was to help the underprivileged, to improve the economic lot and the social lot of those who needed improvement the most. I just think that that spoke to visionary leadership. That spoke to a person who remained committed to what they suggested they would do once they assumed the mantle of leadership. And uh, so all of the praise, all of the recognition, all of the legacy that we talk about with Richard Gordon Hatcher, I think, richly deserved. The city of Geary, which was founded in 1906 by U.S. Steel, already plagued by an economic gut punch in the early 1960s as the steel plant laid off thousands of workers. During the same time, Geary began to see an almost exodus of its white citizens and most detractors attributing it to Hatcher being elected. Talk more about that for a moment. You know, uh, partly, but I'm not going to lay all of the blame on that. Clearly, America was not ready, and Gary, being still probably 50-50 African-Americans at that point, and Caucasian population, uh, there are many people in Gary who were not ready for that type of leadership. I mean, it's just, the times just did not dictate it. So there was a white flight. Unfortunately, not just residents, uh, uh, Caucasian residents leaving the community, 
When they left, they were the principal business owners. So when you see a desolate downtown Gary shells of, of businesses and buildings, you see those businesses there in South Lake Mall and Merrillville. You see the piers, the Finney's, the Goldblatt's, uh, the Robert Hall's, the you name it. All of the companies that you see uh, uh, out in Merrillville and in the malls, Merrillville and some of these other places, uh, those were all vibrant businesses in the city of Gary. So the biggest gut punch was not as much as residents leaving, although population decline is important. The biggest gut punch was the fact that when they left, the businesses left as well. Now, you alluded to U.S. Steel. Uh, and when I suggest that, it's not all the fact that uh, Hatcher was elected. One problem we had as a community is that we were so reliant upon U.S. Steel. During the term of my being a city councilman, when U.S. Steel paid their property taxes, it nearly constituted almost half of our entire city budget. That's how reliant wow. we were on wow. U.S. Steel. Now, what happened, and a lot of people are not aware of this, but I happened to have been a councilman at the time, so this is firsthand. What happened was U.S. Steel realized that they were such a, a dominant uh, portion of providing the uh, tax base for the city of Gary. So they lobbied, they lobbied the legislature and suggested that they were paying more than their fair share. They went to Indianapolis, they lobbied the legislature, and U.S. Steel was afforded the opportunity to pretty much uh, uh, assess their own property taxes. Wouldn't you love to have that privilege? Absolutely. And so what happened was, uh, in addition to the white flight and the businesses leaving, well, when U.S. Steel then, after being successful, the term is called abnormal obsolescence. Uh, that was the legal term for the action that took place. Well, when U.S. Steel was successful in that, being able to assess their own property taxes, then the city of Gary literally started to receive about one-third of what U.S. Steel was originally paying to the city. And remember, I mentioned that that's how totally dependent we were upon them. So let's couple all those things together. The white flight, the businesses leaving, U.S. Steel being able to assess their own inventory tax and the decline in revenue to the city of Gary, then that is what you get in terms of a city now trying to rebuild itself and the, and the city trying to expand its tax base and a chamber of commerce working extremely hard with, with entities within and outside of the city and with Mayor Prince and this administration trying to work as hard as we can to restore much of what was lost in the city of Gary. So that's where we are right now. Wow, wow. And I thank you for unpacking and expounding on, on that question. You share um, valuable information that a lot of people are not aware of. I'll be honest with you. I had not. I don't think that I was fully aware of the full dependency that the city of Gary had on U.S. Steel. Let me tell you this, uh, D. Uh, not only the full dependence, uh, everybody, all the black folks that migrated, including probably your folks and my grandparents or whatever, Everybody migrated from the South because in 1906, uh, when U.S. Steel, when the city of Gary was founded, uh, at that very same time was when U.S. Steel decided to build this massive plant, and they were looking for a place. And so they found this barren land in northwest Indiana, and uh, they started, Albert Gary started to build the U.S. Steel plant, and then blacks started to migrate from the South. And then when, when, uh, we were accustomed to working under all kinds of conditions. We're talking about people who initially were slaves and sharecroppers. Mm -hmm. So we were the population. We were, we were the 
working population that they were looking for. And when people came up here, our ancestors started to work in the mills. They could they could stay there for unlimited amounts of time, make all kinds of money. That's why some of our grandparents, great grandparents, with no education, sixth grade educations, they were making six figure salaries in the fifties and sixties. Because you could literally lay in the mills and make as much money as you like. So ultimately or subsequently then they were able to send their kids to college and and uh, some blacks were able to become teachers and doctors and lawyers uh, in our communities, like Richard Gordon Hatcher and others. So, hey, listen, it's a rich history in terms of how we got to where we were, where Gary was the magic city, to the point where we got to where Gary was a city in decline, and now a city that we're talking about trying to really make things happen. So, uh, come by my office one day. I can give you, I'll give you the complete lesson. But yeah, I do. Uh, I'm probably, I probably am one of the few living people now who lived through a lot of it and was part of a lot of the legislation and a lot of the actions that took place, some things that happened in the community. And so uh, just happy that I was helpful if I was. Chuck Hughes is the president and CEO of the Gary Chamber of Commerce. Okay, Chuck, so in preparing for our interview today, I spent a great deal of time doing my homework because, quite frankly, I wanted to be certain that I got the story right on the life and legacy of Richard Hatcher. And one major thing that I wanted to be sure that we discussed today is that Richard Hatcher was a national voice of civil rights, bringing the National Black Political Convention to Gary in 1972. And it's important to note how it played out in not only black history, but in American history as well. And I'm going to pitch you a ball, and I hope you can hit a home run with this one. Now, picture Gary, not known as a town for having a lot of hotels or other venues for holding large events, yet it played host for this event to so many African-Americans that traveled from around the country, including noted activists and dignitaries, the likes of Muhammad Ali, Coretta Scott King, Louis Farrakhan, and Jesse Jackson, just to name a few. And wow, and just to be in this space, just to witness history, you know, what are your thoughts? Well, they didn't care about the venue where they were. I believe it was West Side High School. They didn't care about the venue where they were. Uh, As I mentioned before, the Civil Rights Act was passed in 1965. We're only talking a couple of years, a mere couple of years later, uh, five years or so that these people convened in Gary. And because of the success of Richard Hatcher and Carl Stokes, then that was inspiring. There was a call to action. Black people say now, hey, we can be in the leadership position around the world. It was an awakening. And so to convene in Gary, it was historical. Uh, that had not occurred anywhere else. And uh, with all those leaders assembled and with the collective energy that was derived in that room and the inspiration to change lives and to become powerful forces in government and in our country and be a part of the American fabric. Listen, the emotion was running rampant. And so it didn't matter where they were. It was the fact that all of these prominent African-American black leaders was there together in a collective spirit in order to try to be unified, to make some change, to make some things happen. Now, I don't know subsequently in, in the subsequent years what all happened, but at that particular time, the spotlight was on Gary, Indiana. Richard Gordon Hatcher was the person who convened this massive meeting, and it sort of put Gary on the map. Now, having said that, uh, here in northwest Indiana, Indiana being a red state for the most, well, well, majority red state, 
I can't say how that can't went over with the uh, majority population of the time in Gary and Northwest Indiana. But it was an awakening for black leadership and a black community. And so it, it made its mark. It was etched in the uh, history of, of America at that time. Absolutely. And I should say, as you mentioned, that it made its mark. Those people who came, who traveled from all over the country, they were not of the same thought. Some some had the militant thought of, of by any means necessary. Some approached advancing the rights of African-Americans as being quite peaceful. So even in that, that just speaks to the leadership of Richard Hatcher, being able to assemble many people who did not necessarily agree on the approach on how to advance the African-American voice. And so I did want to include that as well. That within itself, I'm certain it was a monumental task, but to see that play out, so many different things. Well, that made him him an instant uh, leader in the uh, national black community. That once you do that, once you're the person who's the facilitator, once you're the person who convenes the action, that automatically ascends you to a high level of leadership. Continuing on speaking about Richard Hatcher's leadership. Also during his tenure as mayor, Richard Hatcher was briefly an advisor on urban regeneration to Lyndon B. Johnson's administration, and he used that service, that connection, to bring federal resources back to Gary to help with affordable housing, economic development, as well as to fight crime. Being mayor always had its challenges, but he always rose to the occasion. And eight years after he was first elected mayor of Gary, Richard Gordon Hatcher married the love of his life. Together, Richard and Ruth Ellen Marie Rose raised three beautiful daughters. His eldest daughter, Reagan, followed in his footsteps and is currently a member of the Indiana House of Representatives. Not only did his audacity to believe he could inspire generations, including Chicago Mayor Harold Washington, all the way to President Barack Obama to run for and win their respective seats, his legacy lives on. So, Chuck, as we near the end of our time together today, do you have any final thoughts? Well, when you mention that uh, his legacy lives on, I think it's no clear indication that anybody who visits Gary City Hall will see this very prominent statue of Richard Gordon Hatcher. He is the only person with a statue in the inner city, the city of Gary, aside from the founder of the city, Albert Gary. So I think that speaks volumes for itself. Uh, when you When you stand alone, uh, on, on the doorsteps of Gary City Hall, and you're the person with a statue. I think that's a lasting monument, and I think that speaks volumes to what he's done, and it's a great history lesson for visitors near and far and young people who go into our, our city hall. So, yeah, I think that uh, it's a legacy that we can all build on, be proud of, and not only that, not just consider it as a memory, but I think it should be one that inspires us in every walk of life, be you an elected official, a school teacher, a chamber exec, or a media person. It should inspire all of us to greatness, and it should inspire all of us to want to improve the lot of the human element in our community. And So it's been inspirational to me, and it's certainly a driving force in what I try to do as an individual and as the president and CEO of the Gary Chamber of Commerce. Chuck, I would be remiss if I did not give honor where honor is due. As I said in the beginning, you are living, breathing, walking, and talking black history. 
but in your own right. You have a long career in service to the community, having served with the Gary Fire Department, the Gary City Council, and now as the president and CEO of the Gary Chamber of Commerce, and not to mention just your countless acts of service to man. So Chuck, thank you so much for spending time with me today talking about the life and legacy of the Honorable Richard Gordon Hatcher. I really appreciate you carving out some well, time D, with me. Thank you for being so kind, and thank you for saying those kind things about me. And I want you to know that uh, even your comments are inspiring to me to try to continue to make a difference. So I really appreciate it. And thanks for having me. Absolutely. Chuck, thank you so much once again for joining us on Regionally Speaking. Anytime. Chuck Hughes is the president and CEO of the Gary Chamber of Commerce. To get more information about the chamber, you can visit www.garychamber.com. And welcome back to Regionally Speaking on listener-supported Lakeshore Public Radio. I'm Dee Dotson, and he's Tom Maloney. New data shows an increase in the number of men in northwest Indiana getting vasectomies as the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade and Indiana's near-total ban on abortions went into effect September 15, 2022. Late last week, Planned Parenthood Great Northwest Hawaii, Alaska, Indiana, Kentucky launched vasectomy services at the Hammond Health Center. The organization has plans to further expand vasectomy services in three additional locations across the state in 2023. So we turn now to Rebecca Gibran, the organization's CEO. Rebecca, thank you once again for joining us on Regionally Speaking. Thank you, Dee. Thanks for having me. Rebecca, when I think of Planned Parenthood, at least for me, I don't necessarily think of men's health. But I understand your organization provides a host of services, including exams for men. So take a moment to talk about some of those services that are available for men at your clinic right here in Northwest Indiana. Yes. So we provide a whole range of comprehensive reproductive health care services, including birth control, sexually transmitted infections testing and treatment, breast health exams, pap tests, um, abortion care is still being provided in Indiana. And of course, now we're really excited uh, to be offering vasectomies in our Hammond Health Center. And we have plans to expand in other parts of the state this year as well. Rebecca, so I've called on Planned Parenthood many times over the past few months to get your organization's response to what's happening in the world around us. Last summer, there were protests as well as rallies across the country, including right here in Northwest Indiana, both in support of and opposed to a woman's right to an abortion. But surprisingly, I saw a lot of men make the decision to stand up and be an ally for women's reproductive health. And to that point, some even made the decision to take control and have a say regarding unplanned and unwanted pregnancies. So is that why Planned Parenthood Great Northwest made the decision to expand services to include vasectomies? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. I mean, the fall of Roe really left many people concerned for their personal reproductive rights, and in some cases, the reproductive rights of their partners. And while for some, that can be a helpless feeling, Planned Parenthood has seen an increased interest in vasectomies from patients, which is really both, you know, an act of protection and, and as well an act of love for one's partner. What is a vasectomy? And on average, how many were performed before the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade? And how many more have been performed since Indiana's near-total ban on abortions September 15, 2022? 
Yeah, that's a great question, Dee, and I don't have all of those stats for you. Um, what I can tell you is that PPG and HAIK has seen a 40% increase overall in vasectomies since the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision. And simultaneously, calls requesting vasectomies have surged at our health centers in Indiana and in Kentucky. So the numbers there, I think, are pretty staggering, Rebecca, in terms of hearing that number. 40% increase, um, and that's uh, that's sort of without the, I guess, the um, the blanket PR work in terms of letting people know that, you know, vasectomies are now possible. Um, one thing, I guess, for me as a, as a, as a guy, as a, as a father, you know, I, I still want uh, more children. Uh, my wife and I have had that discussion. But, um, you know, for those individuals out there, we often hear, like, a vasectomy is reversible, right? You get it, and then you decide later on you want kids. Um, what are the long-term impacts and, and ramifications for men? Should they uh, choose to get a vasectomy? You know, Tom, that's a really good question, and I I don't have the expertise to to wade into that other than having a physician answer those questions for you in terms of the specifics around uh, reversal rates. Okay, fair enough. Um, In that case, then, I I think one other thing, it is that time of the year, March Madness is right around the corner. Um, And uh, statistically, uh, the week leading up to March Madness is one of the most popular times for men to get a vasectomy. Why? Because you have to lay around on the couch for a couple of days. And what better opportunity for men than lay around on the couch and watch uh, (laughs) college basketball? Um, Do you expect to see any sort of an influx uh, on that 40% over the next couple of weeks, or is this going to be sort of a a slow and steady increase in terms of uh, Hoosiers looking for vasectomies? Yeah, listen, you know, I think um, consistent access to birth control really gives people the ability to control when and if they have children. Um, and, And I certainly think that as the realities of the public health crisis that has been created across this country with the fall of of Roe v. Wade, I think we are going to continue to see an increased demand for vasectomies um, across the country. We certainly know we're seeing that demand rise in Indiana. And so Planned Parenthood, you know, we're an integral part of Indiana's network of healthcare providers. And so for us, Providing access to vasectomy services really just allows us to continue our 90-year history um, as a trusted resource for family planning and reproductive health care services to Hoosiers. Rebecca, so vasectomies have rarely been the popular choice, and oftentimes women have carried the burden of preventing pregnancies. More women get their tubes tied than men get vasectomies, but let's point out the obvious. Vasectomies are less expensive and are an outpatient procedure with a low risk of complications, and they take less than about an hour to complete, correct? That is correct, although I would say that um, abortion is also a very safe procedure with very minimal complications as well, and is also performed in a, in a clinic setting. Rebecca, really quick here before we let you go, uh, we want to thank you for the conversation today talking about uh, Planned Parenthood uh, launching vasectomy services here in Indiana. But um, what has has Planned Parenthood been like since the the fall of Roe um, last summer in terms of having, you know, access to 
uh, birth control and contraception and, and all the things that sort of fall under the umbrella of Planned Parenthood. Um, have you have you seen more clients? Have you seen an increase in donations? Have there been more people protesting outside the doors? What's 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 it been like? Yeah, you know, while we fight in court um, to restore comprehensive reproductive health care that includes abortion um, for all Hoosiers, um, increased access to family planning is more vital than ever. And, you know, for 70% of our patients, Tom, we are their only health care provider. So our phones have not stopped ringing. Um, we are here for our patients. Our patients still need access to reproductive health care services, the full range of reproductive health care services. And even if that means we are helping our patients access safe pathways to care outside of a state that has banned abortion, uh, we will continue to do that. We're, we are here for our patients and we're not going to abandon them um, in, the, in the same way that extreme lawmakers have. Why Indiana and Kentucky? Wouldn't that, like, is there a Planned Parenthood of like Ohio or Michigan or like, you know, the, the Midwest or something that it would fall under? Is there any sort of yeah, specific you know, reason? There's a lot of um, a lot of questions about how we came to connect with Indiana, Kentucky. And I think the biggest reason is that, you know, for for many, many, many years now, um, the legislature in Indiana and um, in the Commonwealth of Kentucky have been so incredibly hostile. We know what the Mike Pence administration did to reproductive health care, to HIV testing and treatment. And those affiliates just needed to partner um, with an organization that, you know, really is a mix of sort of red states and blue states so that we could really harness our collective thinking and our commitment to the mission in a way that could keep Planned Parenthood strong um, in Indiana and Kentucky. And the reason it made sense for us is because we've got experience with non-contiguous states. You know, nothing is close to Alaska or Hawaii, <laughs> and we are operating um, very successfully in those two state states. And so when it came time for Indiana and Kentucky to be looking for strategic partnerships, um, and forming a good business alliance um, to further the mission, um, they they came to us, and we were happy to to step in and to partner. I mean, I think worst case scenario is no Planned Parenthood in Indiana or Kentucky um, because of the continued attacks by extreme lawmakers. And we just said, listen, that's not going to happen under our watch. We're not going to give Mike Pence and Mitch McConnell. Um, uh, you know, an above-the-fold headline that they were successful in closing down Planned Parenthood. And so um, it has been one of the most amazing experiences for us to come together with our friends in the Midwest. And, you know, for me, it feels like home because I was born and raised in Nebraska. So I love being back in Indiana and visiting our health center staff and all of the people that support our work. Rebecca Gibran, CEO for PPGNA. H-A-I-K. Did I, did I get it all? 
You did. You got it perfect. Excellent. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us here on Originally Speaking. That is Rebecca Gibran, again, CEO for Planned Parenthood of Great Northwest, Hawaii, Alaska, Indiana, and Kentucky. Thank you so much for joining us here on Originally Speaking, and I'm sure we will be talking again in the near future. Great. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Dee. Welcome back to Originally Speaking. I'm Tom Maloney. We're joined now by Planning Manager Iman Ibrahim with the Northwestern Indiana Regional Planning Commission, better known as NERPSI. Iman, welcome to Originally Speaking. And as we have you on the air now to talk about the NERPSI Transit-Oriented Development Program Funding Study, what is the snapshot of this study? We have been working to develop a transit-oriented development but with the economic development opportunities uh, that is uh, NICTI and the Regional Development Authority, RDA, bringing now uh, around the Whistlick Corridor and the South Shore Line, the double track, uh, to transfer transform neighborhoods. Uh, and in response to that, we put together this new uh, funding program. We receive uh, federal funding. Uh, for transit and transportation, and we really wanted to improve the area uh, around the station. So that was the background, how we started uh, this program. So so we wanted, as we're looking at a transit station, we wanted to enhance the uh, amenities uh, by reducing vehicles uh, uh, within the area and also reducing emissions and encourage uh, energy use uh, and provide people with the bike trails and bike lanes and also pedestrian uh, sidewalks so they can have a good uh, connectivity without using their cars. So that's the the main thing that we're looking for. However, the TOD area, if we're talking about the TOD area, it has like a certain requirement uh, to be successful. So first of all, the connectivity within the area, uh, that it has to have like a good grid system of a street that connect all the neighborhoods and also has um, to have also a high density of population and, and mixed with employment within the area, uh, ha- also to have amenities, a restaurant and services within the area. And if we have all of this, this is, will be a good uh, transit-oriented development, or uh, a TOD. There are eight different categories, including population density, employment density, housing, walking scores, bike scores, transit frequency, transit ridership, uh, to go into the TOD plan. And, of course, uh, you're looking really at that uh, that area, including um, the 25 miles for the project area with the 16 miles of the new secondary track going from uh, Gary, all the way out into Michigan City for that double track extension. Um, is there any community in Northwest Indiana, according to the data that you came across, that is really hitting it out of the park, so to speak, in terms of what they're already doing around uh, uh, development areas around uh, bus, train, and uh, other stations? Yeah, we have like we we classified actually the type of investment. Based, you know, when we did all of the typology and analysis within the 18 stations, and by the way, it's not only the the NICTI, uh, and the South Shore and the West Lake Corridor, the 13 stations. In addition to that, we added also uh, a five bus station 
and and as you mentioned, you know, like we have so many criteria to select uh, the five bus stations. Of course, we don't have funding to fight to to fund every single station. So we have to put a criteria of the the, the density, the type of ridership, and the number uh, of ridership, the 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 area, and the mix of employment, uh, the the need uh, for uh, a bus system within their area. So we looked at all of these criteria and we also added a five station. So so we classified the type of investment based on the first, the, the type one is COD progressing. And in this one, yeah, there are some communities are ready to go. They already have the, uh, the mix of housing and employment within their area. Uh, they have enough amenities. They only maybe need to improve uh, and provide like affordable housing. Uh, and when I mention affordable housing, it, it, it's not necessarily just for low income. Affordable housing that like meet all incomes, you know, like it could be higher income or lower income, but it has to fit the need and the income of uh, the family within this area. So a mix of housing will be good within this area. Uh, so, yeah, we have communities uh, are ready to go. We we have, for example, I don't want to point because really, uh, you know, a good number of communities will be trying to do a, a, good, a good effort to implement that. But like, for example, uh, the city of Valparaiso within the area, they meet, you know, uh, a good number of criteria that we're looking for for the transit-oriented development. Hammond is working on that now, try to bring in housing uh, to the downtown area and also Manstar is working on that and they developed some plan to improve the area. So some people already progressed and, and some people already, you know, like in the way to improve the area, but some other area, they, they need plans first and then they will, it's going to take some time for them to uh, become a, a successful TOD area. Talking with Iman Ibrahim, Planning Manager for the Northwestern Indiana Regional Planning Commission, better known as NERPC. Iman, um, there are TOD districts uh, 1, 2, and 3, including the urban, urban core slash downtown, uh, number 2, which is a suburban community, and number 3, which is the commuter community. Um, how do those classifications work when applied to Northwest Indiana? Yeah, this classification, it depends on the size of the community. Like a TOD one uh, maybe will be uh, uh, working for city like Hammond, Geary, um, Michigan cities, like a, a larger communities that they have a larger employment, uh, like a good number of population within the area, the type of building that they could have like five, six stories uh, of buildings. So, so that's the TOD one. The type of the downtown is different than medium-sized community or a small community. So that's the, so we classify the TOD one is was for uh, uh, Hammond, Gary, and and Michigan City. So and then comes TOD two for a smaller community. It's not a smaller like a medium-sized community like maybe uh, Munster, uh, East Chicago. Um, it could be also Valparaiso, um, um, uh, Portage, and, and and then we have the smaller community TOD three, and this is specifically like a, a like a TOD restricted area, uh, and in 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 this one, 
for example, the Doom Park Station. Uh, this area like a ha- is having a high-quality transit, but they are lacking the, the urban character within the area. Of mm-hmm. course, it is restricted because of the national uh, uh, park system within the area. They don't have any opportunity uh, to, to grow uh, from the re- residential and environmental uh, perspective. Uh, they don't have a street grid system, of course. Uh, they don't have enough density uh, of any uh, housing or any amenities. So for this type of uh, uh, TOD, because they still have a good high uh, ridership, uh, we are uh, like recommending to have like improving uh, accessibility, street uh, uh, connectivity. They could have like improving uh, biking within the area. People, they could walk to the station with the limited residential that they have. But also we recommend like a shuttle surface. Uh, and, and the city of Valparaiso already doing that. They have a shuttle from uh, Valparaiso to the Doom Park Station. Uh, so that's the type, but we could encourage also other uh, communities to do that, to, to access this like a high quality uh, transit station. Uh, the, the entire study really provides a, uh, a terrific snapshot of where Northwest Indiana is currently and where really it needs to be in order to meet the uh, demands of a uh, 21st century workforce, one that, of course, we know was uprooted and upended by COVID as lots of folks now no longer need to uh, remote or rather, uh, you know, commute into the city. They instead can just remote in from home or they can work from home. Uh, do you see that kind of an impact uh, already in this study in terms of the the impact in, in needing the uh, public uh, service transportation? Um post-COVID, or is this still something that Northwest Indiana needs in terms of being able to grow and keep up with that 21st century demand? Yeah, it, it, it's still, you know, like either they're going to Chicago, uh, uh, some, uh, uh, like, services job, uh, you, know, you can't work from home. You know, like, if you have a time, you provide services to the customers directly. Uh, if you have to work in store, if you have to work in, uh, like, a any other commercial uh, um, uh, buildings, you know, like this is these people cannot work from home. It's, it, you know, like it's, it's for us. Yeah, I'm working from home today. You know, like so, it, the type of job I'm doing, it could be uh, done at home. Um, but, but other jobs is still require uh, people using uh, transportation buses to go to the hospitals, to go to shopping area. Um, so these still there, there is a need, and it's coming back again. You know, like I know with the COVID, you know, like it has like a, a significant impact on people. But I see that now it's it's coming back, and people now have like start to have their normal life again. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I can tell you that like the number going to Chicago uh, is not as much as before, but they're still running, they're still going. Let's talk briefly about the uh, the new Westlake corridor that's uh, being um, implemented uh, from South Hammond through uh, Munster, Dyer, and into, uh, uh, I guess, Central and Southern Lake County. What's the status of that project, and uh, what kind of impact is that going to have on that uh, that western portion of Lake County? I think this is a great project, uh, and really, you know, like this is because 
I know that some people from Dyer and Chillerville, they used to drive all the way to, to the Hammond uh, station or the East Chicago station, uh, and that will provide significant uh, services to this area. I see uh, a good number of people moving from uh, Illinois to live in Indiana because of the uh, the housing prices is much better and, and lower taxes. So, so I still see people. I still pe- uh, see people coming from uh, Lansing and Linwood from Illinois to to use uh, the services. Uh, so I think it, this is a great project. And uh, as I heard, I think it should be completed in 2005, uh, 2025. I mean, uh, so I'm not sure exactly, uh, but but that's the the date I heard. So hopefully up around the bend. Um, we're talking with the planning manager for NERPC, Iman Ibrahim, here on Originally Speaking. I'm Tom Maloney. Iman, uh, we, we talked briefly about some of the communities in northwest Indiana that um, are, are doing a really great job of implementing a lot of those eight categories for their, uh, their TODs. Um, what about communities outside of northwest Indiana? I've seen some mention, of course, of uh, University of Chicago, its south uh, campus, as well as uh, some, we- some places in the south and western suburbs that have done a really good job of building up the infrastructure around their um, public transportation hubs, so to speak. Is there any places in the area, just in the Midwest or in the Chicagoland area, that have done a, a really good job of kind of implementing what Hoosiers would probably want to see and have here in Northwest Indiana? Um, uh, yeah, that's a that's a good point. And um, uh, the the RDA and also One Region organized uh, multiple tours to these uh, transit-oriented development for all the leaders here within the area and the mayors that they have uh, stations, train stations uh, within their communities and and to see really, you know, the type of improvement, what's the TOD, how it works, you know, like the, the type of amenities that are needed within this area. Uh, so so we, we've been working on that, you know, like to educate people. We also, um, I take the presentation and, and, and present it to different Communities, uh, so so, the, and, and I'm planning to do that more to their plan commissioners or uh, plan commissioners uh, meetings uh, to just educate people and let them know more about uh, transit-oriented development because they are the people making decisions about future development, and I think th- these are the people uh, uh, that like need to to learn more about transit-oriented development. So in this report and the uh, in the TOD uh, program uh, funding study, a couple of places were mentioned, including Merrillville and Gary, uh, really about being automobile heavily dependent. And I see that all the time. Our our office is right off of Mississippi in Merrillville, just uh, south of South Lake Mall. And you know I can't get to work without a without a car, without a truck. Um, I'm wondering yeah. what. What can communities around Northwest Indiana do moving forward, even if they're not necessarily part of the um, the TOD study in terms of, you know, if they don't have a, a train station or a bus station going through, even then if they do, what, what can communities do right away or what can citizens do uh, to help make uh, areas of Northwest Indiana more residential friendly in terms of walking and in terms of, you know, bike friendly and getting out and about and not necessarily needing a vehicle? 
Yeah, it's, it's you know, like from uh, like NERPC is providing the funding, and we really, you know, like give like when we score the projects, we really give like high points to communities that uh, uh, within like a, a higher density of employment area or residential area or downtown. So to encourage people. Uh, to build the sidewalks and build the bike trails within this area. We did a study, a safety study uh, for the U.S. 30 along uh, 65 and also U.S. 30. And in this one, we have a, a good recommendation of providing a safer crossing uh, of the streets uh, in U.S. 30 between the two commercial areas along U.S. 30 and also providing uh, a bike trails. We we also uh, providing a TOD for the Century Plaza, which is uh, uh, very close to U.S. 30 and Broadway. And uh, the, the town of Merrillville actually applied to have a plan for a town center and improve this area mm-hmm. to make it more walkable. Uh, especially it has, a, you know, like a good number of uh, amenities and employment so people can walk around at their lunchtime or if they wanted to buy something after work. So we, we have been working, you know, but like also, uh, uh, you know, it has to come from the communities, you know, like we don't have authority over zoning uh, uh, in the local community. So it has to come from these communities to really, you know, like to improve and have really, you know, like the uh, a goal to improve uh, their area and their livability within their area. So we try to do our best to fund these uh, projects, you know, that's really uh, improving vocability and biking within the area. Iman Ibrahim, Planning Manager for Northwestern Indiana Regional Planning Commission, better known as NERPC, discussing the NERPC Transit-Oriented Development Program Funding Study of 2022. Again, a great snapshot into where we stand here in Northwest Indiana and what's to come for the future of the region when it comes to public transportation. Iman, thank you so much for joining us here on Regionally Speaking. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And that's it for Regionally Speaking for this week. Thanks to all of our guests, and we'll be back with you next week with an all-new show.